0: Taylor. I'm Rachel.
1: And, and we're
0: Here's the Barclays. This is our podcast about culture, Christianity, politics, everything in between, and our relentlessly optimistic take.
1: Radically. Radically. <laughs> Gotta get our tag ah, in the way.
0: <laughs> started with an R. And we have another optimist on the show today, Jason Pfeiffer. Hello, hello Jason. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome, Jason.
0: Um, Jason Pfeiffer is an expert interviewer. Unlike me, um, has better <laughs> transitions. He is the editor in chief of Entrepreneur, the magazine and the website. He is a host of two podcasts, uh, Build for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers. He and his wife co-wrote a novel, which is really cool, called Mister Nice Guy. Uh, Jason and his wife and uh, his family—they're friends of ours—and we're just super pumped to have Jason on the show to talk about his new book called "Build for Tomorrow: An Action Plan for Embracing Change, Adapting Fast, and Future Proofing Your Career." Welcome, Jason.
2: Well, it is a delight to be here with you guys. Thank you for that very nice introduction. Oh, absolutely, we're pumped, Jason. We're-
1: we love the book. We love everything about it. It jives with kind of our radically optimistic take, but even better your book is chock full of stories and tips and gives so much more color than we have on our podcast so we are excited to get kind of your world view on this and would love to just hear an overview how would you sum up what is
2: this book about sure well thank you well so this book really came out of an observation and the observation was that the most successful people are the most adaptable and it that, you know that it, it, it's funny i i you know I used to feel like I was trying to pull two different strains of thought together for myself. One was that I spend most of my time with entrepreneurs, talking with entrepreneurs about how to build things, how to grow mm-hmm. things. Um, but then um also you know I, I had this this podcast that was originally called Pessimist Archive, and you know, Taylor, you and I have uh have uh, worked together in different capacities on it. Oh, yeah. And um and uh and that was really focused on tech, but more broadly speaking, like societal and cultural changes. And I was, I, I I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like I've created these two threads for myself and how do they come together? And and what I ultimately realize is that everything that I'm doing is really about adaptability, about the importance of it, um, about hmm. how both at every level, from a personal level to a cultural level, we are better when we are more willing to engage with new ideas to 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 um be respectful of what came before but not feel beholden to it and on a on a personal level i you know i was very curious as, as someone who didn't always feel particularly adaptable like what was it that people were doing people who are really really good at being adaptable what were they doing in their minds in their actions that enabled them to look at a situation and say, you know what? It's time to figure out how to solve this problem. It's time to figure out how to solve other people's problems. It's time to figure out how to like move forward and, and see what new value there is. Um, and the pandemic was this perfect opportunity to hmm. do that because I got to watch, we all got to watch everybody go through the same change at the same time and then make radically different decisions. And mm-hmm that felt like the opportunity to really dig in and say, okay, what are people doing and how can the rest of us learn from them?
0: That's, that's great. And you
2: have, you have know, what, the four stages in your book? Yes. Right. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So you actually teed me up to explain the book and I didn't. Uh, but uh, so the book is... <laughs> well, this is book... like what, your
0: hundredth podcast interview <laughs> on the book?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I usually go into a uh, I, I usually just repeat myself, um, but I didn't hear because you know I like no n- why because I actually know you guys, but also because you 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 touch this other part of the, my my world that people don't ask me that much about, which is the which is like the podcast side. Uh, so I usually end up just being interviewed on the entrepreneur side, and I give this like entrepreneur answer. But I tried out something, which was to bridge two things, and I don't know. We'll see how it went. The listeners can decide. <laughs> no, great background. Um, I love it. I love uh, okay. it. Yeah. Thank you. So um anyway, yes, the book the book breaks up change into four phases, which is what I I came to realize through watching people in the pandemic. Everybody goes through everybody goes through change in four phases, which is panic, adaptation, new normal, and then wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back being the mm. moment where we say, I have something so something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. And I I, I got to I watched as people in the pandemic, like everybody went through those stages. Mm. Right? There were people who I met who, I mean. Before shutdowns, the lockdowns, I had some people telling me exactly how they were going to pivot their business, which was wild. But wow. they they like didn't. Like in
0: January, we were talking about February. No,
2: like 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 March before things really locked out. Uh, I remember, gotcha. I remember, because um, in January nobody took this seriously, right? Right. Right. right, right, um, right. In, um, I remember going out to, uh, I remember going out to dinner, to a friend's birthday party. Uh, and I was sitting next to this woman, her name is Megan Asha. And she runs a, uh, like a, like a natural consumer product goods trade show company called FounderMate. And I've spoken to FounderMate a couple of times. And, and I said, I said, Megan, it looks like live events are going to shut down. Like, what are you going to do? And she said, you know, I've already thought about it. I'm pretty excited because, um, I, we have all these other ideas for, for revenue streams at Foundermade, and we've never really been able to explore any of them because our resources are always huh. devoted entirely to, like we, we, we can't not be putting on the events. And so all of our efforts are towards the events, which means that we've never had time to explore these other things. So now's the time to figure that out, which is actually pretty exciting. And that really stuck with me because here was someone who, I don't think that she was not panicking, But I think that she went through panic a little earlier and a little faster than other people. And then she was trying to figure out how to harness that panic, how to say, Hmm. all right, instead of I'm going to panic because I don't know what to do, she's going to panic and then use that panic to figure out what to do. (laughs) And um, Hmm. and 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 I thought I thought this is. This is something everybody goes through these four phases, Mm. but some people are just seem to have programmed their brains to move through them more efficiently than others, to move through the earlier, harder stuff and get to the problem-solving stuff. And that is what I wanted to understand so that I could help other people do that too.
1: That's so, that's just you telling that story. I'm like, Oh, that is not my natural way of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I like to it's sit not, in the panic a little bit.
2: <laughs> it's well, not it most helps, people's.
0: Yeah. Well, it helps to have it like mapped out as you do in the book. And I, I was going to say like your, your tagline, I read it earlier and, you know, future proving your career. And I, yeah, I, so I've read it. It's great. Everyone should, should read your book, buy your book, but you know, future proving your career. I think it's, it's couple tips for like all aspects of life. And it's not, you know, you have your example of this, this woman who's pivoting her business. um, But I think like all aspects of life and another thought just to throw on the the fire here that you both can respond to is like, maybe there's like the kind of the time we we all spend different amounts of time in the different stages. Like it's Mm -hmm. different for everyone. Like maybe some people... Or the tendency can be to panic a little longer, or to like really sit in that and don't move beyond it. Like you were saying, Rachel, it's like if I have it mapped out, maybe I can move to the next phase faster. Like your your friend did with her business.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I was reading it, I thought it's really applicable to parenting these stages, right? Because if you are someone who doesn't embrace change, then parenting is going to be really hard. Yeah, you know, you have two little boys. We have two little boys that you know, each stage is so different with kids that change is constantly happening whether you want it to or not. And there's curveballs, and you cannot predict what your child's going to be like in that next stage. So right. being adaptable in that, I was like, oh, this is very applicable outside of business.
2: Yeah, well, so it's it's funny that you, I mean, I totally agree with you guys. Um, what you have seized upon here is uh, what we might like to call book marketing. So my, <laughs> um, my you know, my my publisher... <laughs> The original tagline, or the original like uh, tagline subhead, whatever for the book was I think it was embrace change, adapt fast, and future proof your like life and business, or something like that, or life and career. Okay. Um, and then the this like sales or marketing team or something came back and they said they said so that feels like just a general statement so we need something that promises like there's going to be things that you can do with this book so they added the phrase an action plan and so then it became an action plan for embracing change and then um, and then they felt like um we needed to target one market cuz sometimes if you you know if sure. if you try to be something to everyone you're nothing to nobody so right. uh so they just dropped the life stuff um but you're right this is this is equally applicable because because I mean, how many, I mean, Rachel, your example of parenting is, is perfect, but there's so many, and there are so many other ways in which throughout our regular lives, just living our lives, we, um, we will find ourselves looking at new things through a lens of, of what we used to think or know or be comfortable with. Um, you know, we, we just went through this, Jen, my wife and I personally, actually, when, so we Mm -hmm. moved, uh, Mm -hmm. we moved from, uh, our apartment in Park Slope, which is a you know, very dense, uh, uh, high demand neighborhood in Brooklyn, and we moved out to a uh, like an actual house uh, in Kensington, which is a uh, a little further out neighborhood. It's more residential, less cool, and um, and <laughs> I mean, that. it just it just is, <laughs> yeah, um, it just is. But uh, and now I was really excited about this because I was primarily thinking about space. Like, I just want more space, and we will mm-hmm. whatever else happens, will it'll be fine we'll learn the new neighborhood but jen who really loved being in park slope and i did too but i think she more so um she just kept seeing things through the lens of what we were experiencing in park slope right which is to say she just kept thinking about but there aren't as many but now it's going to take longer to find a good coffee shop or to like walk to a good coffee shop and right, right. and like and, uh, and now, uh, it's going to be harder for us to get the kids to school because the kids schools used to be around the corner and now it's going to be right. And she just kept focusing on the loss. Like huh. here are the things that we already have. And here are the ways that we're not going to have them in the new place. Whereas I was focusing on the gain. I was saying, we're going to have all this space, which is going to improve our lives in ways that we don't know. And you know what? Yes, it's going to require like adjustments and there are going to be some things that are annoying, but we'll just figure those out. And, um and i think that those are those are two perfectly understandable ways to approach life changes and and i totally got where she was coming from and um and you know we i mean we were just talking about it a couple of days ago and she said she still doesn't totally feel like she lives in this house like it's mm-hmm. like you know um and i totally do and i think that's because i started from the perspective of like this house is the right decision, and everything else will follow from it. And I think huh. she started from, we are sacrificing something to go to this house, and therefore, like the the sacrifice was maybe the first mm. thing in her head. And I think that she'll, you know, she's adjusting. She's not unhappy. I mean, we love the space, but it's it's a question of whether or not you see things as primarily loss or gain, and mm. and that fundamental perspective, I think almost everything else about the experience of change is going to flow from it.
1: Kind of going back to Taylor's original question that then I eclipsed with my parenting thoughts, but um, his original question about, is there this, you know, the panic stage is what is the hardest probably to get out of, of your four stages. And so like you talked about your mindset just then, Um, what would you say you learned about moving through the panic stage? What are kind of I hate best practice. What are what are good tips for moving <laughs> through the panic stage? Um. Uh,
2: so, I mean, to go back to the loss gain thing for a second, mm-hmm. I the, you will naturally fall on one side of that or the other, and I think that part of that is maybe just the way that you see the world, but another part of it is just going to be the the individual decision, right? I mean, I I try to see things optimistically, but there are certainly plenty of things that happen that I just am pessimistic about. And um and so I think one of the things that we have to start by doing is, start doing is to is to if you're seeing it primarily as loss, to start to investigate the gain. Um, I, I like mm-hmm. to call it extrapolate the gain, right? Because mm-hmm. because what we tend to do is we extrapolate loss. So we will identify something that we've lost and then, um, and then we will build off of that. Because I lost this, I will lose that other thing. Because I lost that other thing, I'm gonna lose that other thing, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're moving, it's um, it's because, well, you know, now we're uh, now it's going to be the kids are going to be further away uh, from the, the school is going to be further away because the school is going to be further away. We're not going to meet local people and because we're not going to meet local people. We're not going to have any friends because we're not having any friends. We're going to be incredibly lonely. Right. And um, <laughs> and and, right, and now you're extra, you're extrapolating the loss. Yeah. But. Yeah but what happens if we what happens if you if you say look i'm just i'm just going to focus on gain right really, i have these three questions in the book which is what are what are we doing differently what new skill or habit are we learning as a result and how can that be put to good use and those are those are simple questions but they're they're guiding towards let's just try to identify some potential gain and then build off of that okay something new is going to happen what could be the value mm-hmm. of that what's the mm-hmm. good of that um i mean with the house for example one thing that we've already seen and we've only been here for a month and a half is um okay we're uh, we're further away from friends of ours that we had made in park slope but what what we're noticing is because we we bought this like larger place and we're surrounded mm-hmm. by people who have also bought larger places that actually the people who were already meeting in this neighborhood are and it's like i couldn't have predicted this but um We've already had these conversations. They're less transient because the people in Park Slope are Ah. all going to outgrow. They're all going to outgrow their spaces just like Mm -hmm. we did. And they're all going to move. And maybe they'll move in Brooklyn, but probably they're going to move to like New Jersey or or Hudson Valley, which means that it's going to be very, very hard to see. You lose touch with a lot of these people. So your network becomes more transient when you're staying in this kind of cool. Cool place. And then you go to the to the boring place. And the people that you meet are committed to being there for decades, which means that you can build a community. And that's what we're going to start doing. Now huh. it's harder to see that as an outcome until you're there, right? Like loss right. is so much right. easier to see than gain. But if you can start to try to hypothesize what the gain is, then you can start to play out scenarios in which what you're doing feels more exciting because it's it's creating value that just didn't exist before.
0: That yeah the the, uh, the loss the fixation on loss I mean so I you know I first was reflecting as we were talking like I first heard Jason's voice coming through my ear ear earbuds in like 2017 is that when you started <laughs> pessimist archive yeah it sounds about archive? right yeah uh-huh. yeah and like that that series is is based on you know looking at historical reactions to technologies that we take for granted today and it seems like those stories which you have a lot of them in Build for Tomorrow your book. Yeah, opening chapters and lessons learned. Like, what what have you learned about maybe just like the human proclivity to I don't know, fixate on loss? Because it's a very natural reaction, from what I understand.
1: Yeah. yeah. Can you Tell us one of those stories, also for the
2: listeners.
0: Oh yeah, oh, your sure. favorite one, perhaps. Yeah.
2: Uh yeah, sure. Um, so, well, let me. Uh, I'll take that in the. I'll take that in the order in which it was received. So, yeah. give a kind of way I thought about it, and then a and then a story. So. All right. Um. So I. I started that podcast, the Pessimus Archive, which just for the record, I sort of partnered with um, with Louis, who you also know, yeah. and who created the Pessimus Archive Twitter feed, and then we worked together for a couple of years, and then um, and then split off, and I t- I took the podcast and renamed it, and Louis still runs Pessimus Archive. Yep. So um, so uh, I I was just really really interested in why. These fears were recurring across time um, because you just you get people reacting the same way about the bicycle and the car and the uh, and the 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 novel and the whatever and uh, and then you can see these these parallels to the way that people talk about things today, like social media and screens. And I and I at first, to be honest with you, it just felt like it just felt like a way to invalidate or make silly uh, the arguments that you hear today and um but 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 then i heard a number of people critique the podcast in the earlier days where they were just like yeah but this is kind of like shooting fish in a barrel like it's you know <laughs> obviously these people obviously these people from the past were wrong right and, and 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 you're also just selecting the 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 concerns that sounded the most absurd right. now right um and and so and i took i took that criticism seriously and it made me start to think about well what would happen if i actually just stopped approaching it like look at these stupid reactions from the past and rather started to say well but what 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 would happen if i took seriously the people of the time and tried to understand what they were Mm -hmm. thinking um and um and then what would that teach us about the way that people think now uh and maybe ways in which we can all Better catch ourselves in these moments. So, um, you know, I mean, a good uh, here's here's a uh, here's a story that I um, that I I tell a lot on on stage when I go and talk to companies uh, that comes comes out of this. So, so in the the early days of the car the, it wasn't called the car, right? It was, it was called the horseless carriage. Um And that's if being, <laughs> people were being charitable. And if they weren't, they called it the devil wagon because that's how they called it. And, yeah. uh, you know, and they, they would throw rocks at cars and they <laughs> would, uh they would, if somebody, if a car drove down the street, somebody would stand on the sidewalk and they would yell, get a horse at the car, <laughs> you know, which is funny. And, um, and they're like, there are all, there are all of these, there are all these like very, legitimate reasons. You know, there are these stories in the past about um, like farmers running out and like with shotguns and like shooting at the cars. And and I think even at the time, but certainly later when those kinds of things were, were seen, it was always like, oh, those dumb farmers, like what, what do they think it's right. a giant bull? Like, you know, I um, don't know, it's a machine. <laughs> Um, and and you know, but if you take those people seriously, like no, they knew, they understood what it was. They weren't idiots. The problem was that mm-hmm. in that particular case, um, this isn't my larger point, but but I'll go to that one first. In that particular case, what was happening was that uh, you have to think: okay, car is introduced to the world, um, but there is no infrastructure for the car, right? right. It, which is to say. Um, there's no cultural infrastructure. So people aren't commuting to work. So they don't really know what to do with this thing. And also there just isn't the road system that there is now. Yes. So the only people who can afford these things are wealthy people. Mm-hmm. And because there's nothing really to do with them, the only thing to do with them is to take them on joy rides. And the only place that you can do a joy ride is like out in the country where you can, you can get some speed. You can't do it in the city. The streets are full of people because at the time streets were like, commerce was happening in the streets like yeah it's so um, chaos it was chaos it was it was was just it wasn't what we think of now like now streets are for cars but back then streets were not for cars right so um so the only thing that you can do if you want to buy this car is take it on a joyride in the country and if you take it on the joyride in the country here's what's going to happen first of all these things are new so they're not that good so they're breaking down constantly they're also just spilling gas like everywhere and also (laughs) you're just going to start hitting animals You're just going to start running over chickens and dogs. And that's why the farmers were upset because you got uh, these rich jerks with their loud, messy toys blazing through my, by my farm and killing my animals. That is, that's worth running out with a shotgun and being like, where's my shotgun? Yeah. It's like Elon
1: Musk and Twitter basically.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's, the, that's like, the parallel. Maybe. Yeah.
1: Um, Rich guys
0: uh, ruining everything. That's true. Yeah. Right. That's, yes. yeah there that, you go.
2: That's true. I think that there's I, there's something to be said for that, right? Because because actually because right because like because because Elon Musk because Elon Musk only sees Twitter through his own lens. Like like his experience of Twitter is is everybody's experience of Twitter. And my guess is that yeah. the the wealth and like this is I think his, his fundamental problem. And uh and the the uh, uh the like early drivers of the car. They they just the the only thing that mattered to them was that they could drive, uh, right? What didn't really matter to them was what was happening around them as a result. But anyway, that that's a side note. the The reason I'm telling this story is because, um, so in the early days, so these people hated cars. They hated cars for all sorts of reasons, and. um, and when we tell the story now about why and how the car became the dominant mode of transportation what we tell is the story of Henry Ford Henry Ford revolutionized manufacturing right right made cars cheaper more accessible but that skips over this really interesting thing that I had heard from this um car historian who I had interviewed for Pessimus Archive a million years ago who told me that one of the bi- the big change was that um in the early days of the automobile the horseless carriage, the manufacturers advertised the car as a replacement to the horse. They would say, mm. get rid of Dobbin, your your horse, and get this car. And um, and people didn't like that. Mm. People hated that. They found that obnoxious because they had they 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 liked their horse. The horse loved their Dobbin. Way. Yeah, who doesn't love Dobbin? Um, right? You know, like you know, maybe he's a little smelly, but he's otherwise pretty nice. Um and, and so uh and so the 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 thing was that like the auto industry was chewing this. Thing that, I, that I came to realize like as I spent time thinking mm. about why people were reacting to it, I realized here's an important insight right here. And the important insight is that people don't like new things. What people like are better versions of old things that's mm-hmm. what they like and it's important to recognize that and to appreciate right. that because because people don't want to throw out everything that they know for like whatever random thing you have they have to you have to meet them where they are you have to start with like what they're comfortable and familiar with and then build a bridge not from you to them but from them to you and that's what the car mm-hmm. industry did which is that they stopped talking about the car as a replacement to the horse. And they started talking about the car as a better horse. Better so they horse. started to <laughs> describe cars in terms of horses. They started to name cars after horses, which we still do today. They started to popularize mm-hmm. terms like horsepower. They started to um, put mechanical horse heads on the front of cars, which we obviously don't do today, but you see the intention. And this ultimately helped build that bridge of familiarity. And I, I now tell that story in, in front of like, Executives at large companies, uh-huh, and uh-huh. they all start like they start to get it, and they start to nod along because because what they're seeing is that they are often introducing something to people without having understood where people are already right. It's like right, you understand that right. you understand the thing that you have so well that you forget that it doesn't make sense to other people, and and if you want to introduce something new to the world, you better you better recognize where people already are and respect that and start from there. And, uh, and, and anyway, like, so to, to, go back to your, to your question, like I, I find that these, once I started taking seriously what was actually happening at the time and, yeah. and, um, and like it started to unlock these insights that I thought were really useful for us now too.
1: Mm-hmm. Can I oh, yeah, go ahead? Uh, something that, that, Taylor and I talk about when it comes to technological change and that I know you, um, address a little bit in the book is, you know, you talk about with the horseless carriage or the car, yeah. um, it wasn't all gain. And just like your moving mm-hmm. story with Jen, it wasn't all gain. There was some loss, your favorite coffee right. shop or whatnot, your your neighbors at the time. Um, you know, people talk about with the, the advent of the car that, you people driving out to the suburbs and commuting to work now. You know everyone isn't close by to work, so communities right. that could totally change communities. In, yeah, yeah, communities have become more diffuse. Um, so there is this, you know, and you talk about this in the book with um the bubonic plague, terrible, miserable time. <laughs> Obviously, All downside, a right? A lot of death. Yeah, a lot of downside. But then out of that came kind of you talk about the end of serfdom and you know into right. commercial um activity which people should read the book to get that whole story but um so what what do you do with the you know you can you can have this mindset shift focus on the upside but that doesn't erase that sometimes things are broken or lost in the wake of change yeah and, I mean yes.
0: add on that like when you're talking about your move I can think about what if i have to move? Cause you know, we both Rachel and I lost our job and it's just yeah like that. There's it just appears to be all downside and yeah. Riffing on that.
2: Yeah. That, that That's a great point. So a couple things. Number one, I think that we, we can, should hold two things in our heads at the same time, which is that just because there can be benefit to something doesn't mean that the loss is invalidated uh, because mm-hmm. there, there is loss. And, and, somebody said, I, I've tried to track down where I first heard this. I have like a th- guess that it was Steven Pinker, but I'm not sure. But who said, you know, the, the, the way to evaluate progress is, is, um, is actually by asking this question, which is, is our new problem better than our old problem? Um, because you know, if you if you ask the question of is this perfect, the answer is no. It's not. It's just never perfect, <laughs> right, right? right? So cool. if that's the way in which, and this is, I think, a big problem with how we try to evaluate new technologies now, which is that something new will come along, and like somebody will immediately say, "Ah, oh, but it's being abused in this way," um, right. right? But like, yes, okay, that's a problem. So we should solve that problem. But that doesn't mean that the whole thing is terrible. Um, but but oftentimes our instinct is to, is to look for perfection and then when we don't see it assume that the whole thing is rotten, and instead the better way to is a better way to evaluate things is is to track progress by problems. So in the case in the case of the car, for example, yeah, it totally it changed communities, it changed the the structure of uh, uh you know of of cities. It it did you know it made all sorts of changes to our world, um and and it created problems problems that were grappling with now uh, right mm-hmm. environmental problems um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but i i think it's also worth asking like is this new problem better than our old problem right i mean here you're like our old problem was you were pretty much stuck where you were and, yes. uh, and, right. and if a fam, if a family member moved away, you probably would never see them again. Right. Uh, and, and right. Like there was just, yep. you were in a world in which transportation was incredibly complicated. And, uh, and I think that we have a better problem now, which is that we have to solve for all the challenges that the, a, a car driven world has created. But I think that those are better problems than the ones we had before. Um, now, you know, I mean, look, and then to your to your question about, uh, like, let's just say that the that you know, oftentimes what we're talking about here is, is it was something that was intentional and it had maybe unexpected results, right. like you know, you introduce a car to the world, but then you lose your jobs and you can't afford your home anymore and you've got to move. I mean, or bubonic like, plague, uh, <laughs> or bubonic plague, right? COVID. right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's there's no way, there's no way to um to to just say, well, just buck up. Right? I mean, it, right. it's it's really, really, uh, it's it's not fair to say that to people who are going through major challenges. Um, but I think the the bet, you know, I, it, it's funny. I I tell this story. Uh, actually, I, I generally open these keynotes that I give with the story of the bubonic plague, which I won't repeat here in full because it takes time. But um, but but basically, you know, like the 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 short of it, as Rachel teed up, is like sixty percent of Europe died, and as a result uh the the very beginning of the employment contract as we know it was created and, mm. and the idea that like labor has a value and value and like the person who does that work should be compensated that came out of that because it because 60 percent of europe dying basically like broke the lord and serf system as it as it had mm. been structured and um and so so i i i always say um when i introduce this i say i say now the reason we're all here today right now yeah goes back to the bubonic plague mm. uh would we want sixty percent of Europe to die for that? No, but it happened. Mm-hmm. It happened. And we 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 don't gain anything by debating whether something should happen if it happened. it It doesn't help us right, right. right. Um ah, uh, you can get lost in a maze of counterfactual thinking in your own head, and it doesn't really do you any good. Mm-hmm. And so, if you were to lose your house because both of you were laid off, I am not here to say congratulations, you are now in for an exciting life change, right? But what I am here to say is- <laughs> Don't is like, panic. Yeah, right, right. Because it's like panic, you should, you should panic. But like the jo- the job that you have now is to figure out how to create good out of that. Mm-hmm. Um because that's the only option that you have. I mean the other thing that you could do is you could you could just say well everything is hopeless now and and I'll just live in the past and you could do that but there's no moving forward from there. And and so like the thing that I think we need to do is arm ourselves with the tools to just be able to try to try to build from whatever happens. Um which isn't to say that every change is great uh or that every hand that you're dealt is right is, is perfect. It's not, but you only have one option after that happens and that's to try to find something good from it because, because the, the, the alternative is, is just, is, is just endless sadness.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's maybe this is a good segue to how my Christians think about. Yeah. You know, uh, the points in your book and yeah, Rachel, your you have thoughts? Oh yeah. You go ahead. No, you, 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 you
1: go. <laughs> uh, So yeah, reading your book, you know, I thought about my, our, our own story here in that the week after my 30th birthday I became a mom and I became disabled pretty radical life changes that I'd I mean I wanted to be a mom I wanted that change I did not want the change of becoming disabled and you know nobody wants that to happen right um but I was forced these two forcing events made me undertake radical change that you know I like went into kicking and screaming and definite panic of like, I cannot oh, yeah. imagine the outcome be good. And now three and a half years on the other side of this journey, I look at your kind of four phases you went to, through. So the panic, which probably I sat in for eight months to a year adaptation, which I'm still in and kind of in, in the new normal or kind of in the same phase. And then the wouldn't go back. Um, And in a way, you know, Taylor, what you say I, to that. Well,
0: because for you, it's like, would you go back to
1: I mean, if if I could say like, if I could have my whole body. Sure. Yes, I would go back to that kind of like bubonic plague. Would you want to go back to uh, having yeah, your family? Members? Okay. Because
0: that kind of gets in like the magical thinking. Maybe you're hinting at Jason. I was like, we can't well, it happened. I... It happened. We can't like wave a wand and like erase the past.
2: I think, I think I, I want to, I mean, I Rachel, I don't want to interrupt you. I want you to keep going, but, but just to, just to clarify and wouldn't go back, you know, I think that we don't have to take wouldn't go back as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, obviously if you, if you could, you would certainly be happy to go back to before, uh, before a disability, no question, but I bet that there are things that have happened in your life as a, as a result of it, or, you know, like just, th- and you define for you know you define for yourself but as you're talking i'm thinking about examples for myself too where where there are things in your life now that you certainly wouldn't want to go back from right and and it's not so when i say wouldn't go hmm. back i don't mean time machine where like everything has to change hmm. but rather that there are there are things that 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 are of great benefit that uh, you are yeah have you uh, uh, yeah that's good that's good
1: yeah that's that's i was gonna wrap it up with just that like sure i wouldn't go through you know my physical suffering again but i don't know that i would trade having gained now i have we have this rock solid understanding of our marriage because if taylor didn't leave me during that he's yeah (laughs) everything else is less hard than that and then Mm -hmm. i have you know um a lot more grit uh, in learning how to walk again i have this understanding that I have physical limits. Everyone has physical limits, but yes. I'm more aware of my physical limits. So I delegate more. I have Taylor share in the parenting and household duties. And right, I bring right. more people into my life to help than I would have before and just kind of like burnt myself out. So that like well of knowledge, the knowledge of, hmm. you know, suffering isn't, isn't the end that we will get through it, that it's temporary. Um, And then, you know, of uh, faith strengthening as well. So there's so many things that I have gained that I I'll, I wouldn't go back to not knowing that. Yeah,
0: that's good. I think, that, gosh, that's that's a great way Christians might think about this. <laughs> um,
1: what do you what do you think? Heather? What what might? Christians
0: uh, think about oh, me? I mean, hearty amen. Uh, I think Jason, when I was reading your book, like it it fits really neatly into I think a Christian theology or worldview of like uh, you know, practical tips on how to live. Because I think that's something that's un- often under addressed in churches is just like the theme of your book, adapting to change, to suffering, to hardship. There aren't a lot of like, there's not a lot of, like, there's acknowledgement of it, but just like how it feels. <laughs> and if, you know, if just, I like to focus in on like the moments in the Bible or like I was thinking about the folks who you've interviewed, like, like uh, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Like I'm sure he had moments in his career maybe you talked about them in your interviews with him uh where it like i think of you know moses like it really sucked at one point and it was unclear that okay there's going to be a path out of this but i think with like the biblical i mean theological context like there is this you know um an end of the story and you know i think your book does a similar thing of like okay there's there are steps along the way and what where the, the sucky part you're in right now is not permanent in all likelihood so I, yeah, I don't know if you had examples from folks you've interviewed maybe on that like resting in like the the ambiguity of the, the panic part.
2: Yeah, well, you know, so it's interesting. I I um uh I mean I, I because we're in the 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 the, the what's the Christian takeaway segment of the show I'll will say I'm I'm you know I'm Jewish but like really in just like the lightest possible sense which is like <laughs> which is like I like Halla, you know and and it's about uh it's about it like i am just I'm not practicing really in any meaningful way um and so this is not uh, like just a religion is not an area that I'm all that literate in but um you know a a concept that I I think is it seems to be rooted in just about every religion is, is just, is just the concept of, um, um, it happens for a reason in some way, right? Like, well, however you attribute that reason or the, the mm. whatever, that there's a sort of purpose to, to, to life, uh, a purpose to the things that happen. And, um, and, and, um, and I think I I've always thought that the reason why people that, why that is a universal experience, that something happens for some kind of purpose is, um, is because we're really adaptive as creatures. We just we just are. Uh you know like our our brains are built for it. Um and I I mean I interviewed this guy he, uh, his name is Bruce Filer. He wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions um a while hmm. ago and he had gone out and like interviewed I don't know thousands of people who had gone through major like what he calls life quakes, some massive change that that happened to them, right? So like, Rachel, without question, you had a life quake. And I mean, both of you had a life (laughs) quake. And uh, and so, um, uh, and and I said, you know, at the end of it, um, how do people feel about their life quake? And he said, you know, really almost universally, after some amount of time, people felt like there was a purpose to the life quake that that it it drove a decision or it or it changed a relationship or it altered something of their in their life that was that was a value and um you know coming from a coming from me coming from a kind of not religious point of view i i just think well that that's because that's that's the only way that we survive um mm-hmm. you know like you and you can you can you know from, you know, from whatever um kind of you know Background you have you can you can ascribe um, right. whatever purpose to that you want but but I think that in general like look we just we just wouldn't survive if we didn't have the ability to m- create some kind of value out of whatever our circumstances um, and and also because you know you just don't know how one thing leads to another I mean uh, you know often I think the reason why like we have national moral crises. Is because we always think that we're witnessing the end of the story. Yeah. So, like, you know, like some thing happened. Some some new technology was released. Some law was passed. Some some cultural change happened, and that's the end of the story. And forevermore, like whatever, right? But that's never ever what happens, right? Right. right. Um, like it's it's um you know like somebody will be elected and as a result uh the electorate will move in some other way which will lead to somebody else being elected and they'll pass something and then that will actually have some <laughs> unintended consequence with it. and that's what that's what really happens right which is which is the reason why I like I love Better Call Saul which is what I think really just a like a show about unintended consequences it's just like huh. one thing happens and it leads to another thing and it leads to another thing and it leads to another thing and nobody could have predicted and now everyone's trying to like deal with whatever the thing is that <laughs> came next and um but that's what we do as people. And so, um, so I think like, however it is that you come to the, 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 like the acceptance that no matter what the circumstance is, like, it isn't the end of the story. There is some, some more Mm. to be written and some more to be experienced and that, and that you will naturally find some, some way to balance whatever happened with the rest of your life and find some kind of purpose in it. I I just think that that's inherently what it Mm. means to be human.
0: Yeah, uh, that's great, Jason, and that's why uh, you, you're says in your bio you're a nonstop optimism machine. <laughs> uh, have a you know, what radically optimistic, radically cake. optimistic. But yeah. we gotta quickly go to stingers and thinkers, We're out of time. Yeah, um, our media picks the things we liked, didn't like. Should we start with stinkers?
1: Start with stinkers, uh, Rachel. T- oh, okay, well, I'll wrap. Mine is actually a dual stinger and thinker. Ooh. Oh, yes. ah. So, um. I, for those who listen frequently, they know that I love um, historical, you know, especially royalty stories and whatnot. So I'm obsessed with The Crown, (laughs) Uh, obsessed with The Crown, loving, loving season five. I think it does a good job of throwing back to history in the beginning of each episode and then um, tying in, you know, the current day and the story. But my stinker is that I do not love the current actress's portrayal Imelda Staunton is the current queen and I think previous the previous two actresses were just it just did so much of a better job of making her sympathetic and just seeming like this was her um so I think Olivia Colman and Claire Foy were the original two actresses they just I felt like they encapsulated her so much better the new actor actress Imelda Staunton eh I so stink (laughs) <laughs> a little stink
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, my stinker is I'm just going to make I have like two chapters left and Charles Dickens is uh, Martin Chuzzlewit <laughs> I think it's it's like 400 pages of like I don't even know what's going on anymore <laughs> and you could tell he was just like it was written serially and he was just trying to figure it out and I did a little bit of reading and he totally did send one of his characters to America because sales were flagging on the <laughs> book oh funny and, but it's just like oof, it's been a slog I'm, I'm ready for it to be done <laughs> Jason, stinker.
2: Uh so well. I mean, yeah. It's funny. I there was a time, and I can't remember when it was. I think somebody introduced it to me. Where I used to feel like if I was reading a book, I had to stick with it just because mm-hmm. I started it. Which is sounds like what you're doing. Like it's not going to get better in the last twenty pages. I'm well, just telling you. I want to read
0: so, all of Dickens's novels.
2: Oh, okay. All right. So, so you I'm you already to, committed.
0: I'm committed. Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. Because somebody once told me they're like, why? Just like the, You know, you only have so many hours of your life yeah, so you right. can you know you can ditch the thing um <laughs> so my uh my stinker i the last couple of months have been consumed with book promotion and whatever so i haven't actually been able to consume that much but i did set aside an hour um to watch the new quantum leap because i was a i was a big quantum leap fan as a kid uh you no, know do we, you don't know quantum leap no. what neither of you blank faces <laughs> um so we so, don't live
0: in hip Brooklyn, Jason.
2: Oh, this is not this is not hip Brooklyn. This was this was like US, this was like USA Network in the '90s. So, um, <laughs> so okay, Quantum Leap, Quantum Leap was this, the the original. I don't know how it holds up, but it was it was brilliant at the time. So, um, so here's the setup. The setup is that uh, Scott Bakula's character um, works at some some you know s- secret. A government project or whatever—I can't remember—and I don't even remember what the point of it was. But what ends up happening is that he leaps, his sort of his personness, right, um, leaps into the body of somebody. At some point in time just like boom random you're just like now you're in a car and you're like you don't know what is it 1974 is it 1930 you don't know uh, and okay. um, and he has to figure out what is going on and he has he has a person whose name is sam who's back at like headquarters but can can track him down in time and appear okay. like a hologram and and find information about like who sam is right now you're like sam you are now in the body of Taylor Barkley and he's dealing with this thing. Right. And, um, okay. and then, and then, and then what they have to do is they have to identify like what went wrong in this person's life. And then they have to fix it. And then when they fix it, he leaps again into like another random person and it just okay. goes on. It was a brilliant high concept. I was so into it. They, um, they just brought it back. They rooted quantum okay. leap and stinker. I I ah. was so ready for it to be good. Uh, and, And it it wasn't. It was Uh. it was like, I don't know. It was just it was like they took a really high concept, clever show from the 90s and then tried to wedge it into a more formula driven Mm. network television thing now. And it just it doesn't have the life and quirkiness that it did before. So um, neither of you ever heard of Quantum Leap, the original or the reboot. But uh, now I've (laughs) saved you the time.
1: Oh, it sounds like something we would have liked. History plus sci-fi could have been a oh, good.
2: Yeah, wow, wow. Quantum oh, leap backward, yeah. Go find, a, go find like a, a 90s episode. I think that you'll enjoy it.
0: <laughs> thinker, Rachel?
1: Well, I already did. Mine was Duel,
0: The oh, Crown. Oh, because you like The Crown. I love you The Crown. You don't like the actors. Ah, but I see. I don't I see, like I see, the actors, yeah. Uh, my thinker is uh, Michael Gerson, this, was it, mm. Bush's speechwriter, who just passed away. Mm-hmm who wrote this 2013 op-ed in the Washington Post on sending his son to college. Have either of you read it yet?
1: Not yet. No. Uh,
0: really, really excellent writing. I mean, if you feel like a good cry after this, Jason, <laughs> uh, pull it up. It was just like encapsulated, like, well, themes of parenthood and mm-hmm. sending sons off to college, kids off to college, and not just sons, but I uh, would highly recommend it. Probably just search Michael Gerson, Washington Post, son to college, you'll,
2: you'll pull it up. All right. I, Jason. You know, um mine is not going to be a good cry um yeah. i i'm going to i just going to i'm going to just i'm just going to think her a whole newsletter which is are you familiar Ooh. with garbage day
0: no not like oh it's wednesday morning here but
2: <laughs> <laughs> um so garbage day is written by Ryan Broderick who used to be a, a, a like a tech culture writer at BuzzFeed huh. and um and he has a, it's a Substack called Garbage Day and it is it is about internet culture mm-hmm. and about the the big like the like the big things that are happening um on the internet that drive internet culture uh obviously he's been talking quite a lot about twitter lately and he has he has a a way of framing what is happening in a very kind of crazy chaotic space huh. in in really coherent and interesting ways and um and so I feel like when I read Garbage Day, I come away like more plugged into uh, a world that I I feel like as I get older I'm just sort of drifting away from. Um, but that also I get to appreciate how the things that are happening in the kind of weird corners of the internet bubble out into shaping. Um, real culture and then mm. sprinkled throughout all that is just like funny tweets and tiktoks that i would have otherwise missed so wow. I, it's a delight and i recommend it
0: i've been looking for something like this since reply all went belly up it, uh, yes
2: it it is it's like it's like that but more more um tech focused than reply all which was really more culture focused
0: right right
2: right right okay
0: so it's helpful if you're watching uh, usa network reruns for fun yes this helps right. you get up to speed
2: that's exactly right right <laughs> on the commercial br- on the commercial break uh you you can pull up garbage deck.
0: as you adjust your bunny ears your rabbit ears Um <laughs> uh, jason this has been amazing thanks so much for all your time uh jason fiverr has been our guest with the book build for tomorrow
1: jason where can people find you
0: oh yeah great ah good question
2: um well so they can all find the Build for tomorrow yeah wherever wherever you find uh books in any uh form that you like except for stone tablet don't have that yet but audiobook, ebook, uh hardcover uh available. And um and then you can find me um uh you can find me uh um 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 where oh, jasonfeiffer.com is a fine place to go which has links to all my uh all my work and um you know retail you've out got a you've hi. got a great Instagram I've got a great Instagram Hey Pfeiffer you know so it's 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 funny I'm gonna meta uh not meta capital M, Mark Zuckerberg, lowercase M. Um, I'm gonna meta this right now, which is which is to say that um, you know, there's all this research showing that uh, if you give people too much choice, they make no choice at all. So <laughs> I have I very intentionally um like when people ask me this, tried to limit it to just like the book, period, right? Because I know that if I throw uh, them seven oh, things, man. they're gonna do zero things, <laughs> right? Which is why. Um, which is why like there's, it's great. We're over time here, but I'll, uh, but I'll, I'll just tell you because it's like one of my favorite studies. So this woman at Columbia university, professor at Columbia university did a great study where she brought a bunch of, she had students, uh, pose as, um, employees of a jelly company at a grocery store. And okay. every, every hour, every hour they, they did, they had a sa- they were hosting a samples table, you know, like you walk around the store and they're, they're like handing out samples. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and um, every hour they made a switch, and I, I could have the numbers a little wrong here, but generally speaking, So like one hour there would be 20 jellies for sampling, and the other hour there would be like four jellies for sampling. And mm-hmm. they would go back and forth and they did this, you know, for a lot of time. And uh, and the results are fascinating. The results are that when there were 20 jellies on the table, mm-hmm. more people, significantly more people came by and sampled jellies. But when there were fewer jellies on the table, more people bought jelly. Uh, right. So uh, so the so the amount of the amount of options drew people to try things, but the fewer options actually drove conversion. And uh, and and that people have found that in, in all sorts of other studies as well. So uh, so at, at some point I, I was like, I I just I made this decision, which is like when people prompt me for what to do at the end of anything. I tell them one thing because if I one tell them jelly. two things, <laughs> one jelly, that's it. I, I got one jelly for you and that's it. Because if I offer you two jellies, you're not going home with any jelly. I know that.
1: But, uh, but This is known as like the Cheesecake Factory menu problem, right? Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You have an existential crisis. But I know, Jason, that you have a lot of good jellies <laughs> in, your, in your cabinet, as it were. The Instagram jelly is a good one. Thank your you. book's an even better one. People should buy that uh but thanks so much for your for your time again and this has been great uh everyone go check out build for tomorrow the book the book, check the book <laughs> the jelly. yes that's check it out the book.
2: well well thanks guys i i i really appreciate it it's been so fun being with you and and i can't wait to come back uh and promote when i have a line of actual jellies so i'll let you know
0: <laughs> jason jen's jellies <laughs> all right thanks jason we'll thank see you, later.
2: you.